Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Valentine Day, and him, Liverpool University's lover of love, Kieran Maguire. That's the that's the slashing stuff out of the way. Any plans tonight, Kieran? Um, well, yeah, we got uh, we, we got to the fact that we're four hundred miles apart, or two hundred fifty miles apart, because uh, I'm I'm up in Liverpool. But uh, but uh, I, I've just got to say a big thank you to uh, Watford Football Club, and uh, they 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 invited us uh, to the match on. Uh, on Saturday, uh, and and looked after the Baroness extremely well. So she she got her she got her beers in early, shall we say? <laughs> uh, uh, beers, Kieran. You're in the Laurent Perrier lounge, I understand. Were you not? I, I believe so. And uh, <laughs> we, we had an amazing time, and we we met uh, uh, Mrs. Graham Taylor, uh, who was oh, wow. utterly utterly charming and. Yeah, you know, the, the type the type of little old lady that you fall in love with, uh, and she had lots of tales about Graham and the club, and uh, it's it, it's it's great to know that there's still affection. You know, it, even though we think of football as being sort of horribly corporate and so on, that uh, she, you know, she's always a guest there, um, and she's impre- incredibly proud of what Graham achieved and, and uh, of, of Watford as well. And then at the end of the match, Luther Blissett came in, and he was just chatting away for half an oh, hour, well. and, and he's another what fan, fa- fantastic person you know just just a lover of football and uh yeah we we can get a bit cynical on this show and a bit downbeat because of this there's there's too many wrong ones in it but there's there's still good people and good clubs around yeah you can't fault Watford their uh the way they pay tribute to their heroes of the past is is fantastic I have to say although I also have to say that I was uh, a couple of seasons ago asked by a policeman forcibly asked by a policeman to desist from shouting at the statue of Graham Taylor Who's, I was shouting at the statue of Graham Taylor. Are you proud of that football? No wonder you've got your back to the ground. <laughs> Policeman's going, mate, you, you're way too old to be behaving like that. <laughs> uh, and you'll be pleased to know, Kieran, my Valentine's plans, Ali and I are going to the theatre. Uh, oh, terrific. Well, yeah, you'd think so, but only because it's a show that she's producing and there's a problem with the sound system. So <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> she said, do you want to come along? Oh, all right, if you put it that way. <laughs> it's questions day, Kieran, uh, but we do have some news stories and it must have been an interesting atmosphere in the boardroom for the Middlesbrough derby game on Saturday. Um, but the clubs seem to have reached an agreement in their ongoing row. Uh, what is the agreement? Do we know? And does it secure Derby's future? Um, it is it is an accord, which is Good. not a word that we often see no. in the world of football. Um, the exact terms and conditions are being kept private, but you know, we've we, we've suggested let let's let's just sort it. You know, let's try to get things sorted out as yeah. quickly as possible. Um, and remember when when uh, Nick DeMarco, the uh, the leading sports uh, QC in the country, came mm. on the show, he always says he advises clients negotiation is better than litigation. Um, a, it's a lot quicker, and B, it's a lot cheaper. And, and I suspect that when the respective legal teams showed Steve Gibson and Mel Morris the potential costs of settling ah. this in the High Court, right. they might have thought, um, a quick WhatsApp message, <laughs> quick chat, um, and and come and come to an agreement where both parties can claim 
victory. And, yeah. and I think that's very important. So so Mel Morris will be able to say in, in his mind to the Derby County fans, I've assisted the club in reaching an agreement um, and that's going to help save the club. And Steve Gibson will be able to say to, to his fan base, you know, we felt that we were uh, shortchanged. Uh, we, we felt we, we, we were denied the opportunity to get into the playoffs in, in 2019. And now we have some form of agreement. Now, exact terms and conditions, don't know, ultimately, don't care. Mm. You know, mm. Because all that matters is that we are one step closer to uh, resolving things, uh, making Derby County more saleable. Uh, in terms of what's happening with Wickham Wanderers, however, um, no progress. Right. Uh, and, and I think that's that's a shame. Uh, Ron Kohik, who, who came on the show again uh, a few a couple of months ago, mm. he, he's in the UK at present, but n- nothing has come from the administrators. And, and I think it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, bitch here but uh you know the the Middlesbrough issue appeared to be solved without the assistance of the administrators and they don't seem to be doing anything with regards to to Wickham as well so um yeah they they seem to be uh, taking the approach of if we say nothing there's no problem um and, and I think they 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 they, they just reach out even if they can't yeah. reach an agreement with Ron Hope talk yeah, because talking talking is is cheap. It's a lot. It's a lot lot cheaper than you know them racking up six hundred pounds an hour or whatever it is for their for their senior bods uh, just to keep the club going on a week by week basis. So um, that that's one more issue. But they they did I believe they did say something along the lines of that they don't think the Wickham claim is uh, is a significant hurdle in terms of the sale, which which is great. But why were they saying two or three weeks ago? The Middlesbrough and the Wiccan claims yeah. were a big hurdle, so they, they seem to be doing these big U-turns, and, and uh, I think a bit more of a cohesive strategy would uh, would benefit all. Uh, well, obviously, you don't know the answer to this question, um, but I'm still going to ask you. Anyway. So, it, it, will it be down to Mel Morris then to reach out to Wickham, as it, as it clearly seems to have happened with with Middlesbrough, if the if the administrators are not going to do it? Because once the Wickham issue is solved, you you kind of think, well, that's job done, really, isn't it, for saving Derby? Well, um, I mean, Mel Morris's press release just over a week ago did mention both Middlesbrough and Wickham. Again, picking up a phone is is always a good first step to to resolving any dispute. So uh, I think the Middlesbrough one was certainly probably more significant financially because their claim was for uh, probably an insurance value in terms of the lost opportunity to to be in the playoffs and get to the Premier League. Wickham's is more to do with the with the financial differential between uh, broadcast rights in League One compared right. to okay. the Championship. So it, it was going to be a smaller sum. So I, I think they, uh, I think that you, you deal with the big problem first in terms of the numbers, and and then you move to the the next biggest one. There's there's still an elephant in the room in the shape of the unpaid taxes. Right. Um, and you know, certainly when I talk to people uh, at boardroom level at EFL clubs, they say if Derby end up not paying the £29 million that was owed to HMRC and we've taken out loans in order to settle our tax debts, we're not happy. Yeah. Um, so you, you can see that perspective. At the same time, HMRC have got to be pragmatic themselves. Um, you know, it's it's better to get 
half a cake than a quarter of a cake and it's better to have a Derby County in existence with players being paid and therefore contributing in terms of PAYE and NI going forwards than not doing so. So there's there's a lot of politics involved um, and uh, a lot of negotiation. Yeah, having said that about HMRC, I, I think it's in the second or third pod that we did we discussed the idea that several people in football had said to me in previous years that HMRC will eventually draw a line in the sand and say, we're going to have to make an example of one club because mm. because it's happening too much, too often. We're, we're, we're making deals with clubs that involve us losing a lot of revenue. So there is always that fear that one day somebody at HMRC will say, well, why are we treating football clubs differently to other businesses? If they haven't got it, we wind them up. Yeah, and, and I think the thing which really irks HMRC is that the f- outstanding football creditors will be settled in yeah, full, yeah. Um, and therefore HMRC will hold on. You know, if, if Arsenal end up getting paid 100% of what they're owed, uh, and we've had to fight hard to get the legislation changed to um, allow HMRC to be uh, redetermined as preferential creditors, where, and therefore they they are settled first. Um, then why, why should why should we cave in? You know, uh, you know why, why should Stan Kroenke uh, be deemed to be more worthy of paying than the UK taxpayer? And, mm. and that's that's something they've had to fight hard for in terms of uh, getting a change in the legislation. And they'll say. Yeah, why why run one rule for a football club and another rule for a you know, a firm of builders or a, a furniture shop and so on? So um, it, it's up for people to make uh, make 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 progress on on the talks. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. Um, the Premier League's broadcasting income, Kieran, uh, and I'm going to let you give the figure here because I think it's uh, it's not fair. I'm not the accountant. You're the one who loves numbers, but it's it's going to break a big uh, it's going to break a big number over the next three seasons, and overseas rights will be worth more than domestic rights for the first time. Yes, so yeah, we, we're going through the the £10 billion level wow. for the first time, and this this is very good news, I think, in terms of you, you've got to give the people at the Premier League um, an awful lot of credit for negotiating these deals, um, but it's also going to amplify the existing gap between the Premier League and clubs in the EFL. I mean, the Premier League will point out, and rightly so, that there will be an increase in in solidarity payments to clubs in in the Championship and League One and League Two. So so those divisions will benefit. And yes, they will, because they are on a... uh, The agreement that was signed, I think it was signed in 2014, the agreement which also allowed for the creation of the Elite Player Performance Plan was that the EFL now gets a set percentage of the... The, the Premier League's money, so so that that will go up. Uh, I think around about around about 100 million pounds over uh, over the period. So clearly that that is beneficial. Um, in terms of where we're going, in terms of overseas deals and comparing to the other uh, big divisions in Europe, is that the Premier League's decision in 1992 to, to go out to the USA, to Nigeria, to Thailand, to Scandinavia, and so on, and say, look, we've, we've got this new this new TV subscription product. Uh, we're going to give it to you for nothing. And they said, oh, thanks very much. Uh, we're not quite sure what we're going to do with this. And then within a couple of years, big audiences started to yeah. be created. And the next time those, uh, those rights were up for renewal – what the TV stations realised, because they've they've done their research 
is that the the Premier League rights is the is 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 the biggest pie in the pie shop, and, and that stops um, that stops people cutting the cord. And, and I, I, if you're on a subscription model, your big fear is what's known as the churn rate. How many people are going to switch off? Mm. So. Um, the Premier League had also done their research. They realised that, uh, that they had a really uh, valuable, successful, popular product, and they've started to to trade off individual broadcasters in individual countries. So the the deal with the the US is now worth around about two billion over six years. Scandinavian Scandinavia, Scandinavia loves the Premier League, yeah. and yeah, you know, I. I, I, I I work in the city of Liverpool, and uh, you know I, I see the the flight rosters uh, when when Liverpool and Manchester United are playing at home. You know the huge fan bases there, very very popular. Um, and, and we even spoke recently about the the size of the Serbian TV deal, and that's due to local geopolitics. So very 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 uh, good. Um, the, the only the only thing which I think sticks in the throat a little bit was that the uh, the big six clubs managed to to change the international rules in uh, in, in 2019 because they, they threatened to set up a super league if uh, if if the, if, the, if the numbers were, were no longer split evenly but even even so it's it's a, it's a, it's still a reasonable split compared to to many other countries so yeah it, it's looking very good and uh, there are I can assure you there are hugely envious eyes in Spain Germany France and Italy when, when they when they heard this announcement mm-hmm. because um, we now do have a Super League in Europe, and it's called the Premier League. No, yeah. oh, nice. Um, <clears throat> I once flew from Oslo to Liverpool, uh, eleven o'clock at night, with a plane full of <clears throat> Norwegian Liverpool fans. It, it, it turns out the Scandinavians aren't always as civilized and sensible as <laughs> they're made out to be. Kieran. <laughs> 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 uh, and went <laughs> went to meet them. We're supposed to meet them the next morning at eleven o'clock in the in the hotel. Uh, and, a boat, and the doorman in the hotel went, if you're looking for the Norwegians, we barred them. <laughs> okay, it's, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, well, speaking of the European Super Leagues, Kieran, which would have been a much more uh, effective link if I hadn't told you that little story in between. Uh, according to producer Guy, uh, there's a new dawn for Europe's top clubs after the collapse of the Super League. Yes, Um I think UEFA had perhaps had a bit of a kick up the backside uh, as a result of of the Super League proposal, and and what UEFA want to do is to make the their existing products so lucrative that the the benefits of forming your own coolest kids in the class club uh, by the by the Super League clubs, there's relatively little financial benefit. So. So what UEFA went out and did is that they they managed to get themselves a new firm of negotiators, a new set of marketing consultants, mm. and they've gone out and they have uh, they, they've got a forty percent increase in terms of the rights uh, for television when the new version of the Champions League, the so-called Swiss model, kicks in. Um, and yeah, that's going to be thirty-six teams. You've got five home games instead of three. Um, and it's going to be uh, you know, very lucrative if you qualify. But again, one of the consequences of that is that if you don't qualify, the gaps between the haves and the have-nots grow grow bigger. But 
you know, is, is that reflect is that a much more broader reflection of uh, income distribution in society as a whole, which really isn't for this podcast to discuss. Um, <coughs> probably, yeah, probably so, for the best, yeah. <laughs> probably for the best, yes. So um, the, the European Clubs Association, which is now headed by Nasser al Khalifi, um, who has replaced uh, Andrea the Snake. Yelly, uh, <laughs> according to the head of UEFA, um, seems to be very bullish with regards to this. Um, and Mr. Al Khalifi is uh, also connected to PSG, who famously were one of the clubs that said, um, "No, we're, we're not. We're not going ahead with Super League. Yeah. We're, we're staying loyal to UEFA, and, yeah. and that loyalty has paid off." Mm. Uh, questions, Kieran, and, and as always, we've got uh, quite a few, and they're quite varied and interesting. And the first comes from Zach Dalton. Uh, Zach says, I was wondering why loan deals with obligations, not options to buy, are so common in Serie A. For example, Juventus signed Locatelli from Sassuolo on a two-year loan with an obligation to buy for £30 Does this mean Sassuolo only get that fee in two years' time? And if so, what's in it for them? And Zach also adds, very helpfully, thank you, Zach, unless you're wrong, um, of the top five European leagues, the Premier League has by far the lowest number of such deals. Yes, I mean, Zach, Zach is absolutely right, uh, especially in terms of the Premier League. The Premier League also has the highest proportion of players who are signed from overseas um, in, in terms of the big five leagues. And if you are trying to negotiate a swap deal, it's, it's a lot easier to do that domestically than it is internationally because, you know, the, Getting a player to move from London to Manchester or from Turin to Milan, um, and getting two players to agree to that, it is you know not not that much of a problem. Mm. If you try and the alternative is trying to get two players to agree to go from one country to another. So if if we think about some of the the swap deals that we have had domestically, you know Sanchez and Mkhitaryan. Uh, you know, from Manchester United to Arsenal, that that worked out quite well. Um, it works out quite well in Italy because there's a much higher proportion of Italian players in Syria. Um, so, so that is um, one of the, the the reasons why we we tend to get slightly different structured deals. Um, in terms of this obligation to buy, it, it's linked in Italy to the clubs not wanting to put the cost through the books too early. Right. So if you've got an obligation to buy, and, and remember we had a discussion uh, a couple of weeks ago about uh, there's a there's a transfer going through where the obligation to buy kicks in when, uh, I yep. think it's when, when Milan score their first goal of yep. next season. So this is a way of simply kicking the can down the road um, in, in respect of putting it through the accounts. And that there doesn't appear to be that degree of concern in most clubs in the Premier League because they are not as close to the limit of you know breaching financial fair play mm. unless you're Everton. So what have Everton just done? Again, you know, we've had the discussion. Uh, you know, Delhi has gone from Spurs to Everton. But that's on um, a, a pay-as-you-play deal or a deal is structured in such a way as the obligation to pay only kicks in when he's played 20 games, which won't start until next season. So that that clears the decks for Everton as far as this year's financial fair play is concerned. So it is linked to finances uh, in trying to organise things in such a way as that you don't breach financial fair play rules. 
you've half answered um, the next question there, Karen. That's how good you are at your job. Um, our next question comes from Jamie Wormsley, and Jamie says, "Do pay as you play deals exist in English football?" Um, I'm thinking of players like Jack Wilshire with such bad injury records that sub clubs wouldn't even consider giving them a full contract. I would add Johnny Williams to that list as well, who was one of the most exciting young players I ever saw at Palace who had the worst luck with injuries, who's now at Swindon still, I believe. So it's a slightly different context. He's talking about injured players rather than just trying to come up with a deal of, of pushing the, the finances down the road. But do we, do we have those sort of deals where Jack Wilshire will get offered a, a contract that he gets paid if he plays? Um, yes, yes, there are. Um, and uh, as Jamie rightly said, it tends to be linked to those players who have had uh, an, uh, a history of injuries. Um, and from the point of view of the club signing a player, they do it as a risk assessment. Um, mm. If the player has has made a full recovery, then they get the benefit of the player's services and they play him accordingly. If the player has come off, a, you know, has had problems in terms of, of health issues, they, they don't want to commit themselves because they effectively have to go and sign not just that player, but a backup player as well. So they look at it from a, from a, a, a total financial cost perspective. Um, and they... Why? Why do players uh, are normally reluctant to sign such deals? It's because, well, if if you are a if you're a player without an injury, why 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 bother? You know, there will be another club that's going to if if you if you're in good form that's going to play you thirty eight games a season guaranteed and pay mm-hmm. you pay you regardless. So um, it it's it just tends to be a, a factor of where we are in terms of the market and. What we have at present is a surplus of players. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, the PFA are saying there's going to be 700 players uh, out of contract this summer who who haven't yet been offered extensions, um, and, and it's a bit of a bun fight. So if you think about it from the perspective of a club looking to sign a player, you've got choice of two, both of similar standard. One's at three cruciates, yeah. you know, and has, has played four times in the last two seasons. The other one you know, rocks up. Might not be quite as good, but he's... Is 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 available ninety percent of the time, and mm-hmm. and that's why the the payers you play tends to be uh, not the first choice, right. to put it mildly. Our next question comes from Paul, just Paul. Now, Kieran, you know my views on this. We've had discussions about allowing questions from people with just one name, but as it's Valentine's Day, I think we can have a bit of mystery as to who this question comes from. We can speculate who it is that's sending us his questions. Um, and Paul's question is about virtual season tickets. Paul says he's a Rangers fan and can't get to Ibrox often because of the sheer number of season ticket holders. Uh, during the pandemic, Sky allowed clubs to sell pay-per-view, but usually if you aren't at the game and if it's not on TV, you can't see it in the UK, which Paul thinks is madness because their Scottish fan base is massive uh, many of whom, of course, will turn to illegal streams to watch the game rather than happily subscribe to the club or to the SPL to watch it. Yes, um, I think ultimately this this is Sky's decision to make. Uh, they are the rights holders. And as a concession, um, it, it, taking into account the impact that, that COVID had with matches taking behind closed doors, that they allowed this this virtual season ticket, which guaranteed you the the ability to access 
uh, your team um, on on you know, for every home match. Um, and, and I think, for however, they put a cap on the number of virtual season tickets that were sold. Mm. Um, I can understand where where Paul is coming from, and there there are certainly other clubs, uh, both in Scotland and England, who who would like to take the rights away from the the, the key broadcasters and have a direct to consumer sales model. Um, in order for that to take place, uh, it would have to go to a vote of clubs at either the Premier League or the SPFL. And I think here here we have the challenges for the likes of you know, Rangers and Celtic in the SPFL and you know, Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea, City and so on uh, as far as the Premier League is concerned in that in order to to change the rules, you've, you've got to get a certain number of votes. Now, if you are... Motherwell, if you are Hearts, um, why would you vote for such a scheme? Because effectively, the the value of the collective deal through which you get a a, a fair share um, would would diminish significantly. Because mm. um, you know, let, let's not be rude. A, a a Sky TV deal for Scottish football, which excluded Rangers and Celtic, would be worth a small fraction of mm. the present deal, and. Yes, it would be potentially shared amongst fewer clubs, but it will be a much smaller pie split between 10 clubs as opposed to the existing pie um, split between 12. And I, I appear to have a bit of a pie obsession today. It's <laughs> <laughs> the second time I've mentioned this. <laughs> sub- I don't know if you noticed subconsciously, Kieran, you're talking about pies all the time. I'd be interested to know how old Paul is because I think there's a generational issue here as well Kieran in that older fans like us are quite happy with the idea that you can't watch every game your club plays on TV because we grew up in an era when you know Palace or Brighton would be on infrequently and you wouldn't know whether they were on until five o'clock and you'd only they'd only be on for 10 minutes anyway whereas now I think younger fans are just used to the idea that every game is available somehow, whether it's through streaming or Sky or BT, and that they're mystified by the thought that they might have to wait for match of the day before they see the goals. Yeah, we're we're living in a multi-channel, twenty-four-seven world, and yeah, you and I, yeah, you know, we, we 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 both remember those days. You go you go along to a match, and you you know you drive at two o'clock on, on that Saturday afternoon, and. And then you see that incredibly rickety structure <laughs> of, of of sort of Meccano um, and, and a very nervous cameraman. And you go, oh, we're on telly tonight. And, and you'd be genuinely excited. Um, and, and, and it is different now because we've, we've had, you know, the rise of, of – uh, yeah, of, of satellite multi multi channel uh, world, and, and in terms of of Paul's other comment with regards to this would uh, reduce the amount of piracy in terms of streaming. Um, yes, it it, it could. Uh, yeah, I think I think I think that, that is a potential consequence. Um, but what would depend or will be also important would be the price at which these uh, virtual season tickets are, are pitched. Yeah, because. Uh, you know, uh, as Uncle Terry says, for cash, everything can be undercut. Uh, yeah, uh, undercut was one of Terry's favourite methods, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Somewhere where it didn't show. Um, Ryan Critchley uh, is an Aston Villa fan, I presume, because Ryan's question is, Aston Villa's co-owners are looking to create a new MLS franchise called the Las Vegas Villains. 
presumably the first step to a Villa version of the City Group. Will this have any financial benefits to Villa themselves? Um, yes, so the, the Villa owners, uh, Wes Edens and Naz Sawiris, uh, they've, they've pumped a lot of money um, into Villa. They, they've also got uh, experience of uh, you know, American sports franchises themselves, and, and, and they know how the system works. Um, in respect of having an MLS franchise, the major benefits are sort of you, you focus on revenue and costs, and, and um, yeah, we, we're looking at, uh, at how we can you know, boost the former and, and cut, the, uh, cut the latter. So what Villa would be able to do is in terms of they'd be able to go to sponsors and, and uh, they'd say to a, a shirt manufacturer, uh, yeah, Las Vegas villains, they're going to play in broadly the same kit yeah. um, as, as Aston Villa to that's going to expand the brand. Then they can go to the front of shirt sponsors and say, we can offer you, uh, we can offer you two clubs who play in broadly the same kit um, and we'll, we'll get the same kit manufacturer because that's what we've seen at the City Football Group. You know, it's, it's all the kits are made by Puma. Um, many of them are, are are sponsored by Etihad Airways, and, and you you start to have a a global footprint. So um, that that would be a benefit from from a revenue point of view. You've also got player development. Um, it, it, we, we've seen as far as the City Football Group is concerned is that. If a particular style of training and culture and uh, research and analytics works, then that you can spread that over eight clubs, and 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 it, it uplifts everybody. You know, a rising yeah. tide lifts all ships, all that type of thing. So, so that's that's the benefit in terms of potential revenues. As far as costs, what what you can do is if you've got certain central costs. HR, IT, and so on, you can spread that over a number of clubs and. You you don't necessarily need to double the number of HR people or IT people or finance people because you can have them operating from a mothership. So so therefore there's there's cost savings and there, there's revenue gains. And also I suspect in terms of revenue for the first couple of seasons you're going to have thousands of Villa fans who want to buy Villains shirts yeah. as well. And then once things are fully back to normal travel wise, you're going to have thousands of Villa fans. Who are flying out to Vegas for a weekend to watch the villains and have a good time? So, it 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 does make I, I think Villa fans would probably be quite excited by the fact that there's you know there was a short lived Palace franchise and everyone was quite excited by the fact that there was a, a a version of us out there in the, in the the real world. I was going to say, Phil, yeah, yeah. When we, the 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 Brighton owner he owns a club in uh, Tony Tony Bloom. He owns a club in Belgium who are currently winning that league. So yeah, you know, we're we're some mates. We're waiting for the next uh, next international break. If Union Saint Galois are around, you know, or we might go and just see them for one weekend, where you know we're we're not in the cup, so uh, we might have, we might have a free weekend coming up, um, and that 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 boosts that club. You say it increases attendance. Yeah, I knew about your Belgium because I I told you before we started recording that I was out with um, my cousin and her middle class cadre of friends last night. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> two of two of whom obviously were Brighton fans. So it's oh. like, yeah, so, so she's like, "Well, you sit with them because you all like football." It's like, oh, for love of God! Hi, 
I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Our next question comes from Phil Banton, uh, who I guarantee is nicknamed Bantz by his mates. <laughs> whether, whether or not he likes it, he's, he's, he's Bantz. He could be the most dull, dry, I'm sure he's not, but he is old Bantz. But Phil Banton has one of those questions that I love, the why haven't we just discussed this before question. <laughs> and the question is, how does it work when a club wins a trophy? Ah, that's why we've not discussed it before, Kieran. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That'll be the reason. Um, but this is a question. When Phil asked this question, I thought, I thought yeah, bloody well, I would never consider this before. Basically, uh, see, how, uh, how, and I'm excited. The voice goes up. Phil says, is there a new trophy made each year, or do they get a replica of the old trophy, the original one? What are the costs, and who foots the bill? Right. Um, I, I, and I love the way that, Phil managed to shoehorn in the finance element into yeah. what's actually a far a non-finance <laughs> question, but something which excites us both. Of course. Um, it, it, it varies from competition to competition. So, so let's start with uh, let's start with the World Cup and, of course, the Jules Rimet trophy, yeah. uh, which uh, Brazil was, was allowed to keep uh, after winning it three times. So it, they, it used to go on loan to clubs, uh, oh, sorry, to countries, uh, if they won the World Cup and you're allowed to display that. Um, and the, the old rules were that uh, when, the, when the World Cup was initially created, that if one country won the World Cup for, um, for th- on three occasions, they're allowed to keep that. That happened to Brazil in 1970. Uh, yeah, we remember the pictures of, you know, Jairzinho, Pele, Carlos Alberto. You, know, you, you and I, I suspect that was probably our first World Cup. Yeah. Um, and it was it was just amazing because yeah. I, I think it was the first time I'd ever seen color TV. Yeah, because yeah, we 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 couldn't afford. You know, we were on black and white TV at that hour, and and uh, yeah, one of my uncles managed to get. We're not sure where he got it from. Um, <laughs> he managed to get he managed to get a color television. I thought, oh my god, yeah, this is this is a new world. Uh, and seeing that that was the first ever match I'd seen in color was was just amazing. Yeah. Um, sadly, um, the Jules Rimet Trophy was. Uh, was stolen from CBF and melted down, uh, uh, melted down to to make jewellery. Uh, I, I think uh, I think uh, yeah, gold, gold sovereign rings may have been uh, the, the choice of, of the local criminal. Um, and what happens now is that the the new trophy, which which isn't as good because I, I I don't know. Did, did you have a Sabutio World Cup? Yeah, uh, not the actual trophy, no. Well, well, no, I, I got that for one Christmas, and that was it. I, I was absolutely mad. That was that was pride of place. I used to sleep with that at the age of eight and nine. <laughs> oh, I got World Cup. Um, um, but yes. now we, we've got this trophy, which, which yeah, it, it's still a beautiful thing. But what happens is that FIFA give a replica gold plated trophy, oh, so it's right. not this. So yeah, it's it's not it's not worth nicking to the same extent. Um, then we come to the uh, European Cup. 
And up until 2009, the rule was if you won the European Cup stroke Champions League um, five times or if you won it three times in a row, you got to keep it. So uh, Real Madrid, Ajax, Liverpool, Milan, Bayern Munich all have a genuine European Cup um, in their trophy cabinet since 2009. Um, and, and if you didn't qualify, you 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 effectively loaned it for a year. So right. you're allowed to... St- and, and that's actually really important because that allows you to uh, you know, go to sponsors who, of course, want their product next to a player and a big trophy. Yeah. So that allowed the clubs to do that. And, and uh, now, now it goes on loan, but uh, so it used to go on loan. Now you get a replica when you win it. Um, in terms of the, the Premier League, the Premier League have two trophies, one of which is kept at Premier League HQ. Um, the other which goes on loan to the club and has to be returned about three weeks before the end of the season. Right. Um, so, you know, again, it gives you the opportunity to display it in your trophy cabinet, to to use it for sponsors and so on. Um, and uh, you know, I, I was talking to somebody in football uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and he says one of the exciting things, the most exciting things in uh, football administration is if you've got a helicopter trip on the final day of the season because you've got two clubs and he says yeah we actually get very very excited we've got the trophy and we've got two sets of ribbons and we've got a helicopter and we and we and we actually plant the helicopter halfway between the two and and, and we will we will do our best to to do that that trip to to the right place so they, they get very excited about that so that's the case as far as the premier league is concerned when it comes to the fa cup the history of the fa cup is I'm a nerd. For me, absolutely fascinating. We are now on variant number five Mm. of the FA Cup. The original FA Cup trophy cost £20 Mm. to uh, put together. Um, That, again, was stolen. And it was stolen and it was converted into fake half crowns. they had to therefore make a second one, um, and I'm not quite. I think that one then was was retired because it wasn't big enough to include all of the engraving for the individual clubs. You, you know what it's like. Yeah, you know, when in Sunday League you used to get a trophy and and it would have the names of so on. Well, that wasn't big enough. So the, the what we perceive to be the FA Cup, you know, the, the current design that was then created. Uh, so Manchester City bought the the second version of the FA Cup, uh, and that's in their trophy cabinet purely as a as they didn't want it to uh, you know go out of the country. They wanted it to be visible, uh, and since then we've had a few iterations of what we perceive to be the, the, the FA Cup. A couple of them got got damaged mm-hmm. um in changing rooms so so they we now have a version which i believe weighs around about 6.8 kilos that they think it's pretty damage proof um but uh yeah so so that that's where we are at present and again that goes on loan to clubs uh, until <laughs> shortly before the, the the following final uh, two things kieran because of course the jewels we made trophy was stolen just before the 1966 world cup finals Yes, uh, yes. And was famously found by a dog called Pickles. Yes. Uh, not far from me. And my friend, uh, Dr. John, the anthropologist, uh, both of whom sound like nicknames. I know, but he is, in <laughs> fact, Dr. John, and he is actually an anthropologist. 
Um, but he lives in the house next door to where Pickles, where Pickles dug up uh, the dog. Dug up the dog. Dug up the trophy. Dug up the dog. <laughs> Pickles dug up the trophy. So um, I, every time you mention Uncle Terry, I often wonder whether he maybe had something to <laughs> But the second thing, a serious question, when, when Leicester won the, the Premier League, somewhat unexpectedly, are they suddenly they're getting this wonderful trophy? Are they suddenly having to pay huge extra insurance premiums because you've got this very very valuable, both financially and emotionally valuable trophy in your cabinet all of a sudden? So I presume they've got to pay for security and insurance and all sorts of other. Yes, or, or certainly so. It's you know it would be it would be hugely embarrassing, um, as well as a significant financial cost to replace it. Yeah. Okay. Um, our next question comes from Natasha Sims. And Natasha has a question about a subject we have discussed more and more recently, um, but this is a kind of specific angle towards it. As, as companies move towards net zero carbon neutrality by the global 2050 target, how might this impact clubs financially, especially smaller clubs and clubs with large but very old stadia or clubs that travel by private jet for European competitions? Um, well, that, that bit obviously doesn't apply to Palace, um, but our brand new academy is state of the art when it comes to sustainability. But Sellers Park certainly isn't. And as Natasha points out, old grounds weren't built with sustainability in mind, were they? No, no, she's she's absolutely right. Um, what I think will happen is that I think they'll probably yeah we, we'll look at carrot and stick here. Um, I, I think the. Uh, Governments will start to incentivize all businesses to uh, adopt more sustainable models. Uh, we've seen with regards to the, the global spike in fuel prices that having a sustainable model uh, in terms of cost savings with regards to uh, fuel costs makes make sense. And every pound that you save elsewhere is one more pound that goes into a playing budget. And yeah, that, that's the way to think of it. Um, I, I know that David James has been involved in a grassroots campaign mm. to to encourage clubs and and to show the benefits to them of just simple things, you know, uh, you know, turning off the lights, uh, not running the showers for twenty minutes before the first lad goes into them, uh, you know, uh, car sharing, going to matches. You, that, that, there are differences that you can make at, at, at grassroots level. Yeah. Um, so so. That's what happened at a lower league. Yeah, we had Dale Vince on a couple of weeks ago, and it was fascinating listening to him. That uh, yeah, there again, lots and lots of simple savings and also benefits can can get your get your progress to being carbon neutral, perhaps quicker than you think, mm-hmm. and and you, you'll benefit financially. Um, I, I, I I spoke to somebody involved uh, at uh, at the travel end of a pretty senior football club. And I said, what, what, what's the score with you lot, you know, using private jets to do journeys of, you know, 60, 70 yeah. miles and so on? Because, you know, as people probably aware that you, you use a third of your fuel on takeoff and a third of your fuel on landing and, and the bit in between that the plane's actually quite good at, at not, not being at full throttle. Um, and he sort of said, um, well, you, you've got to consider it in in terms of the alternatives. Um, you know, to have Premier League clubs going the full distance by coach with a fairly uh, ropey uh, road infrastructure, and and then and the high risk of uh, delays uh, on motorways is is something that we're a bit concerned about. Um, now, if 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 the match is taking place on a Saturday. 
and um yeah, you know, it, it's a 200, 250 mile journey. So that you'd be traveling down the previous day. Do we want elite athletes being stuck in a coach for five or six hours? No, we don't. Mm. If it's on the match day, even, you know, we, we, we would be worried about getting caught in traffic. So um, they, they try to, to deal with that. I said, well, hold on. Yeah, haven't you heard of trains? <laughs> and he says, um, oh, yeah. Um, he says that the, the big issue with trains is is actually uh, one of getting a bit of privacy because mm. even if you book a couple of first class carriages, um, you know, he says I've got to be honest with and and yeah, you know, this 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 is something which which has been reported on in in, in the last week or two. Um, there, there's been an increase in in what I would recall a low level dickheadedness yeah. at matches. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah you know, absolutely. And, and it's not, it's not that bad, but it it, it, it can creep up. Now, you know, I've I, I normally travel by train to away matches, and I've noticed. And I, I'm not saying this because I'm getting older and older. Because I've been you know, going to going to matches by train for you know for fifty years. Um, th- things aren't as you know. It used to be sort of fairly jovial. Now there's a little bit more of an edge. Now, do you want the players on a platform when you've got you know, lads who are, who are ailed up or coked up or whatever, thinking thinking that they own the players and they can just mm. walk up to them. And so, so, yeah, what he says, yeah, these are players of value commodities. We've got to protect them, and, and we don't feel comfortable um, going by train. So that's why they're that's why they're travelling by plane. And, and so that that isn't great, but we, we need, you know we need to find alternatives there. Yeah, for a, a home game just before Christmas, uh, I get on the train uh, at Norbury. And go two stops, and by the time the train arrived, I was made aware by very many WhatsApp messages that Dougie Freeman was on the train, our director of oh. football. Um, and and so, of course, half the rest of the train gathered around him because somebody just went, "Dougie Freeman's on the train." Yeah. So yeah, so yeah, you can understand from the players' point of view. Yeah, the 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 coach thing will go the night before and stay in a hotel. Um, well, yeah, but they, they all say we we don't want players on a hotel for you know four or five hours. Oh, I guess if, if and and the players will say, let's say that you are Liverpool and you're playing playing somewhere, say Leicester. Yeah. So yeah, it's it, it's not it's, it's not well. First of all, it's not an easy journey. It's not by road. You know, it's it's sort of you're you're going left, right, and centre, and so on. Um, if you say to the players, well, we, we, Leicester, we, we, we're going away uh, and, we, and we're leaving you know, Friday lunchtime, the players go, well, you know, hold on, you know, we, we do have families as well. You know, we, we know it's part of the job to, to be not with our families all the time, but um, yeah, they'll, they'll be a bit, bit grumpy. Um, so that they, you know, they say, yeah, why can't we catch a flight at nine o'clock in the morning on, on the Saturday you know, for, for the rare occasions that Liverpool will be playing at three o'clock on a, on a uh, on a Saturday, and, and you know, it's about it's about looking after your employees from a, from a variety of uh, viewpoints. Mm. And also, Kieran, we're getting to an age where I really recognise that concept of using a third of the fuel on takeoff, and then <laughs> just having to coast <laughs> the rest of it. Um, our next question comes from Barclay Webster, which is undoubtedly my favourite name of the year so far. Barclay Webster sounds like someone who should be asking Ginger Rogers to dance, doesn't he? That's the brilliant <laughs> name. Um, but Barclay's question is this. The FA was fined €30,000 for incidents during England's semi-final win over Denmark. 
That seems a long time ago now, doesn't it? Mm. Um, including a laser pointer in Kasper Michael's face. Now, this seems like a low amount compared to the prize money in the tournament, the FA's resources, and Nicholas Bentner's fine for his poor taste in underwear back in 2012. Um, so how do UEFA calculate fines? Is there a formula? And did I read that UEFA tried to explain its policy once as being fairer to smaller associations? Um. Yes, yes, it, uh, Barclay is is absolutely right in terms of the the fines in respect of individual football associations within Europe. Um, yeah, thirty thousand euro to the FA is is small potatoes, as we know. Um, but if you go to the control ethics and disciplinary body element of the UEFA uh, website, don't don't do that on Valentine's night, guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or well, I don't know. Actually, thinking about it, yeah. <laughs> if, if you're if you're over, depends what we, your, we won't it. We, yeah, yeah, it depends what your partner's into, Kieran. We do, we don't. Yeah, know. I've just I've just opened a rabbit hole. I wasn't anticipating when I started well, off that I, sentence. Well, don't, I? I, I wouldn't do that on Valentine's Day either, Kieran. <laughs> <No. but anyway. laughs> um, I, I, what what UEFA will do is to say, um, in terms of the incident. Was there any financial benefit to the misbehaviour of the party? So in the case of Nicola Bedner, he was being paid by a sponsor to have their name emblazoned on his underpants. <laughs> um, and uh, what UEFA are very keen to do is to preserve what they refer to uh, they, want, they want to protect football from what they refer to as guerrilla marketing. Yeah. So if you are being sponsored, if you've got a senior sponsor for UEFA who are paying an awful lot of money to to have their products on the billboards to be official partners, and they are the official underpants partner of UEFA, what you don't want is uh, yeah, a bunch of players, go, they're getting paid you know, you know, 50, 100 grand each to, to drop their drawers and um, and flash their bums with the name of a competitor. So, so, you, so this is to act as a deterrent. Um, and to protect the point of view of sponsors, and also say, well, yeah, Bent was being paid. We, we can find him. We, yeah. we, we can get the money back. In the case of England, can the English FA be responsible for the behaviour of again, yeah, low level dickheadedness? Yeah, uh, yeah. People think, oh, I'm, I'm a bit of a lad. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this, yeah, and, and it's we don't contone it. It's it's. Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's not appropriate. You you win or lose the match on the pitch. Um, so they will say, "What could you have done extra?" We need to we need to say that we we want to discourage this. At the same time, should England be fined more because they're England than if the match had taken place in Albania and it had been an Albanian fan? Mm. I, I I don't think so. Yeah, I've always taken the view that you know if if you are going to do something wrong, then then everybody should suffer the same. If, if you if, if you're involved in a, an act of you know, physical harm, it doesn't matter whether you're posh or poor. If, if you're doing three years inside, mm. um, you know you, you you deserve the same punishment for the same crime. So I, I think there is a, a, an intention at UEFA to to try to do that, unless the the organisation concerned has willingly encouraged the misdemeanour. And there's no evidence that the English FA had done so, um, and that's why the fine is, you know, it, it's it's a it, yeah thirty thousand euros. Good night out. We're not not denying that, <laughs> but it's uh, it, it it's not going it's not going to financially damage the English FA. Mm. Um, our next question comes from Brad Winks, which is a great name for Valentine's Day. Um, 
Bradwinks says that you mentioned recently, as you did, that's true, that it may cost clubs a lot of money in win bonuses if a team does particularly well. My question is, and it's a good one, do clubs have a binding contract with season ticket holders to always try their hardest to win games? If yes, would a Spurs fan have a claim that the club didn't do their best to win the Carabao Cup when they sat Jose Mourinho, a serial winner, days before the final, and replaced him with a very inexperienced boss, again, days before the final? Uh, that's me saying it's a good question, by the way, not Brad being immodest. But it, it is an interesting one. I mean, you always... The, the one thing, I've spoken to Premier League footballers of, uh, of past and present, and League One players of past and present. The one thing they always say is, well, it's a, it's a given. 100% effort is a given. Of course, we try to win every game. But we know that sometimes, if they've got an important cup game coming up, players are rested. Players might get trying, you know, the whole idea that players try to get a second yellow card so they miss a particular game. So we know things go on. But is there an implied contract between the club and a season ticket holder that they would do their best? No, no, no such thing. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. You know, early rounds of the Carabao Cup, FA Cup third round. I mean, to be fair, the FA Cup, the clubs seem to have got their act together yeah, yeah, this season. Seriously but, this season yeah. yeah, but we, we've had, we probably had five or six years where they, they were. They were taking the mickey, and and that had an impact, I think, upon attendances. You know, yeah. uh, so um, and and certainly um, uh, in terms of yellow cards, um, in in nineteen eighty three, um, I, I was at uh, Notts County seeing them play Brighton, where Steve Foster got booked early on, realised he was now going to miss the FA Cup final, oh. and uh, spent. That seventy minutes trying to get himself sent off, and every time he did it, the, the referee who had worked out was going on. He just came across and gave him a big thumbs up. And go, get, get him off! Get him off! <laughs> and, and the referee wouldn't play ball, which, which which I think is a wonderful part of football. There was, was Foster kicking lumps out of people, um, and, and and we lost. Uh, I think Brian Kilcline, who, who who now lives in a houseboat, I believe, uh, scored the winning goal in that match. I don't think that's that the sort of detail you don't get from. But was Steve? I mean, Steve Foster's raison d'etre was kicking lumps out of people. But, but <laughs> yes. Brian Kilclyde, he was a proper centre back when he he was, it was he was Mickey Droy, Jim Cannon. He would. I just imagine the lights saying to Brian Kilclyde now. What? Just the keeper's going to roll it out to you. Then you hold it. You pass it to the other centre back. Like, what? <laughs> uh, no, that's interesting. But so yeah, so yeah, the rationale. So this interesting is not even in the. Oh, poor old Finley. Is he? Yeah, Baroness has gone out for a run, so I'm I'm left in charge of treats. Ah, he knows how to get around you. So there's no. So you buy a season ticket, you assume that the, the club is. <laughs> you assume, is he worried he's not getting any Valentine's cards from? You was he'll, he'll get more than you or I. He <laughs> so you, but you assume though you buy a season ticket, you think, well, I'm buying this product, and and the, the people providing the product will do their very best to provide me with entertainment, but. Having said that, I, I've sat through three and a half years of Roy Hodgson, so I know that's not necessarily the case. <laughs> right. No, no, there is. Um, I mean, you know, the, the clubs benefit from finishing higher up the table. It's, it's worth around about £2 million per place. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Th- th- there is that. When it, But for individual matches, no. And, and again, you know, I, I go back to the playoffs in, I think it was 20, yeah, playoffs in 2016. 
the week before the playoffs, we had a chance to get promoted. So we put out a full-strength team at Middlesbrough. We didn't get promoted. Sheffield Wednesday had already secured a playoff place and they sent out a bunch of kids to give themselves an extra 10 days. And you absolutely understand why they did it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there, there is always a rationale, but uh, and there were no Wednesday fans were, were whinging about it. In, in the case of the, the Spurs' decision to sack Mourinho, I don't know, perhaps he was on a big bonus if he won a trophy and they thought they'd already uh, decided they were going to get rid of him at yeah. some point. Well, this is one way of uh, not having to pay that particular that sum. Um, our penultimate question comes from Jamie Power. Because uh, good names this week. Mm. Uh, Jamie Powell says, can you please tell me if this is a crazy idea or could actually work in principle? Uh, Jamie, just to let you know that nine times out of ten, when a question starts like that, the answer is A, crazy. Um, but let, let's see. Uh, and Jamie says, as Barcelona are a member-run football club, what was stopping them having a good old-fashioned whip round to raise the funds to keep Messi? They have millions of fans around the world. And they may, may be willing to pay a tenner each, uh, in euros, presumably. What's to stop that happening in lower leagues here? If a club is short of cash, but the fans want to see them push for promotion and are happy to fund a new striker for the price of a pie and a pint. And he says Fenerbahce did something similar, didn't they, to pay for Ozil or tried to? Yep. Yep. Um, no, uh, in, in theory, Jamie, there is nothing to stop clubs taking this approach. And in fact, I, I went uh, I went back to um, the the accounts of Manchester United in the 1970s um, because I, I vaguely recall seeing something along with this. And Manchester United actually had in their accounts fan contributions from local really? supporters groups. Oh, yeah, okay. they had that in the accounts themselves. Oh, interesting. So, um, it, it is feasible. Um, and also, you know, when, when Wigan went into administration, we, uh, you know, we, we got friendly with the people, uh, from the Wigan supporters groups and yes, yes. they had done something similar. They had a fundraising campaign and that money was allowed to, to effectively contribute. I, I think the issue in 2022 is one of fans will say, well, hold on, I'm already paying, you know, Six, seven, eight hundred quid for a season ticket. I'm paying my Sky subscription, my BT subscription. You know, you're, you're supporting a a football club is is now a four figure commitment quite easily. I think for, oh, for God, many yeah, fans, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you're now asking me to use some of my hard earned at a time when inflation is is you know record levels for 15, 20 years to subsidise the wages of somebody who's already a multi millionaire. And mm. I think that. I think selling it to fans, uh, yes, I know that there are clubs like Barcelona who have uh, global fan bases, but many of those fans themselves will have their own financial struggles and circumstances. And I'm not sure just how successful that would be um, as a campaign. On a, on a slightly more local level, yes, um, you know, Lionel Messi was earning you know, 40, 50 million pounds a year at Barcelona. To, to to get that from from fans uh, as as a as a annual commitment, I think would prove to be a challenge. Mm. Now, our final contribution, Kieran, comes from Paul Cleland, um, and it's actually an answer rather than a question. As a very long time ago, um, when we were still establishing the pod, we asked our listeners uh, what's the one change they would make to football. So, either Paul 
works on energy levels similar to us and has only just got around to answering it. <laughs> or, or more likely, producer Guy has just found it down the back of his solid gold sofa. Um, and if you think if you think Jamie Powell's suggestion was either crazy or clever, just wait for this. Because Paul says, my one change to this is nothing to do with football finance, by the way. He's just answering our, answering our re- response. My one change to football would be, when a game goes to extra time, have the penalties first, then play the extra time. This would give the team losing the penalties an incentive to go out and win in extra time and would give any player who missed a penalty the chance to redeem themselves in extra time. Um, I, <laughs> I just, in my instinct, tells me this is a terrible idea, Kieran, but I can't particularly articulate why. Um, I, I do, I, I think, think with penalty shootouts, we all love them. The, the one when Sadio Mane scored the winning penalty in the AFCON final after missing a penalty in, in, in normal time was amazing. Brilliant moment. Yeah. And and somehow I just I just got this vision that if, if you went into extra time already possibly knowing the result, then the team that was ahead on penalties would just spend a half an hour defending. But I don't know. I, I think you're absolutely right there. Um, and also it it does add time on to the the whole equation because what happens if you have that penalty shootout and then one one of the teams scores twice in extra time, it means that the penalty shootout has been a complete waste. Yeah, well, that's so, his point. His point is that if you play extra time and you know, you, there's a result, then the penalties are, are forgotten. Which, yeah, yeah, I agree. Anyway, it's an interesting. Um, it's an in, let's let's label it as interesting. Um, okay, which is the sort I of mean, thing comedians hate being told. Did you enjoy the show? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I mean, I think that there there is a much broader problem with penalties is that if you get a spreadsheet out and you look at the history of every single penalty shootout the team that takes the penalty first has a 60 percent chance yeah. of winning yeah. so there has been discussion about replacing the current system with the abba system mm. where Team one takes one penalty. Ah, yes, yes. Team yes. two then takes two, two penalties, yeah, and so yeah, on. Yeah. And if, if you took if you took such an approach, that would take away the advantage because that gives you a huge advantage of winning the toss. Yeah. Um, and this, this is you know Manchester United got to the uh, Europa League final last year and they won the toss and they elected to take the second penalty. Oh, no. going, they, yeah. They've not done their homework, yeah. and, and this is this is where I say that some clubs are streets ahead of others in terms of analytics and, and others just seem to be more, more sort of Sunday league. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favourite games with Ed. If if Ed's in the house and there's a penalty shootout, I'll just call him because we just love going, oh, he looks nervous. Yes. Yeah. Oh, he's <laughs> yes. going to miss. Always, just as he tucks it into the bottom left-hand corner. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, there's a centre-back taking a penalty. Oh, he's going to miss. Um uh, thank you for listening to our questions pod today. If you'd like to make a contribution to our always free to air pod, then that'd be very kind of you. And you can do so by going to patreon.com slash price of football. If you have any questions for ongoing questions pods, uh, then please, <laughs> Finley, then please email us and questions at price of football.com. And before Finley tugs at our heartstrings, uh, too much, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kira Maguire for his customary farewell. Uh, well, thanks again, folks, for all the support for the show in all of the different means. You know, we, we appreciate uh, all the engagement that we get from, from everybody. Um, and uh, Patreon is one method for as little as a pound a month. You, you can help us. Um, and there are other means. Um, you know, this, this show is going out on Valentine's Day. And 
forget forget the Ferrero Rocher. <laughs> forget forget the droopy tulips from the local <laughs> SO station. Why not, for the your loved one, think 24th of March is coming up. I'm going to set that, that evening aside for the pair of us and come along and come along to the price of football live taking place at uh, Plough Lane, Wimbledon, uh, where you'll see two old geezers chewing the fat and uh, yeah, hopefully giving you an evening of entertainment. And it's only a tenner. So there, there's still a few tickets left. Tickets have sold. Um, we've got, we got a price. Far more than we expected, which we're delighted about. And we'd love to see you all. And uh, you know, you, if, if you have written a question and sent it to producer guy six months ago and not had it answered, well, you've got a far better chance of having it answered on the night. So, so that will help as well. Um, and uh, if, if if not, if not, go go to your go to your uh, podcast uh, application. And if you could give us a review, if you can give us five stars, it helps us in the charts. Doesn't matter what you say. You could say you'd rather have it. You'd rather have it presented by Lord Lucan and Gemma Collins, and we wouldn't care. It makes no difference to us in the charts. Well, we'd have to find Lord Lucan first, wouldn't we? Well, we, yeah. yeah well, well, the only reason why I mentioned his name was I, I was looking through some of my old uh, some old records the other night, and I came across a song called "Lord Lucan Is Missing" by a band called the Dodgems, which is one of the greatest songs of all time. Check it out on YouTube. Um, and if you don't know who Lord Lucan is, uh, uh, you, uh, you know, Google or Wikipedia it. But uh, yeah, great song, uh, very romantic song as well. Again, if you want to woo your partner, <laughs> what a lovely way to end our Valentine's Day special. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. The price of football. I'm for the